As we consider Lord's Day 3 this afternoon, our text comes from us, from, uh, to us from Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 will be reading verses 11 through 32. There will also be our text. This is the familiar parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. So, beloved, hear now the word of your God. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to, and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf in here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has, rece and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. It would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it this afternoon. We also take for our consideration Lord's Day 3. The Catechism, having just laid the law before us as that great equalizer that shows us, as we heard this morning, of our sinfulness and brokenness, the wickedness and perversion that inhabits mankind. So Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? The answer, no. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. 
Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. And finally, question and answer eight. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? The answer, yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. This is our catechism lesson this afternoon. Beloved people of God, called to be saints, we are DIYers. Do-it-yourselfers. We're created, in fact, to work. And more or less, we love to do that. We love to think and be creative and to work with our minds and with our hands. Genesis 2, verse 15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. The knowledge of our calling to work is well known amongst us. Mankind in Adam was, was called to work the ground of the garden of Eden, to extend that garden, to serve the Lord by the labor of his hands. But what's often overlooked in this calling, in this in this command of our God to Adam, are the last three words of that garden calling. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and don't notice what else, and keep it. Adam was called to, quote, shamar the garden, literally to keep watch over it, to guard it, to protect it, to keep all evil influence out of it. All mankind was literally born into a most glorious and beautiful existence in the Garden of Eden. That gift came with what my Old Testament professor in seminary called the dominion and defense mandate. The work of keeping the garden and the work of guarding it. But we know how that story went. Adam was called to work the garden, to keep and to guard the garden. But that did not end well, did it? We know of the fall. Adam failed. He let the devil into the garden, just like a farmer opening the hen house to the coyotes. And the rest, as they say, is history. And so this afternoon, as we look at Lord's Day 3, we see that for us to begin to grasp the joy and the comfort, the peace of the gospel, we have to come to terms with the depth of our sin and our fallenness. Our theme will be this as we contemplate the parable of the prodigal son in Lord's Day 3 this afternoon. Without a true knowledge of our sin and misery, we will not be moved to repentance and faith. Without a true knowledge of our sin and misery, we will not be moved to repentance and faith. We'll take this up under three points. First, the prodigal reminds us that God created man good. Second, the prodigal reminds us that our nature has been poisoned. And third, the prodigal reminds us of our complete dependence on our Heavenly Father. The prodigal reminds us that God created us good, reminds us of our poisoned nature, and it finally reminds us of our complete dependence on our Heavenly Father. So as we hear the parable of the prodigal son this afternoon, we'll, we'll see the pattern of our own misery and the way in which it should drive us all, each and every one of us, to repentance and faith. And so we begin with verses 11 through 12 in our text in Luke 15. There again we hear this. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Before we get to this young man's motives, we must consider the context of what would it have even allowed for such a situation to occur. For this father to give the younger son his share of the property, his his livelihood, it would have meant that he was a relatively well-to-do man, that he could provide such a nice inheritance for his sons, that he could do this while surviving off the profits of the rest of his investments until his death. The young man is likely a teenager and along with his older brother would have grown up quite comfortably, grown up in a wonderful household, nice clothes, good food, comfortable sandals to wear, and the whole nine yards. He could not look at his life and say that he was lacking anything. James 1 verse 17 says that every good gift comes from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Father in the parable of the prodigal son of the lost son symbolizes our good, our gracious, and our merciful, our kind Father in heaven. So think about what that means for this young man. Not only did he lack no good thing, not only would he have had access to everything that his heart desired, he grew up with a stable and a kind Father, a good father, the perfect father, a father who never mistreated him, a father who always was generous to him, a father who never disciplined out of anger as we know ourselves to do, but only ever disciplined out of love. That's the kind of life that this young man grew up in. Truly, there would have never have been more of a perfect household to be in. And so going back to our beginnings, the beginnings of mankind in Genesis, it's quite similar, isn't it? We're reminded that God created man good, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. In fact, God creates all the creation. He looks at it and says it's good. But when he makes man, he says it's very good. If you turn back in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, let's Take some of those words into our minds for a moment. Genesis chapter 2, 7 to 9. Then we read this. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam came into creation knowing nothing but goodness, joy, and beauty knowing nothing but a life that was pleasant, nothing but a life that was pleasing and good. Adam came into this world having all of his needs provided for. In the beginning, Adam lacked absolutely nothing. In fact, Genesis 3 verses 8 and 9 indicate that it was common for Adam to walk with the Lord face to face in the cool of the day. Imagine that, walking with the Lord himself. 
You see, that answers the first question then about our misery, about our sin. Is it God's fault? Is our sin, is our fall God's fault? We answer that very clearly in the catechism. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. So that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all his heart, and to live God in happiness for his praise and glory. There was nothing in the prodigal's past, nothing in our past, in Adam's past, and the upbringing that would have, quote, caused us or him to demand their inheritance, to rebel, and to go their own way. Adam, the prodigal, we lack absolutely nothing. Adam lacked absolutely no good thing from every tree that is pleasant to everything that pleases the eye, the choicest food, all the way to that face-to-face fellowship with God. A good and glorious existence. That is how it all started. Just as the prodigal began life in the most enviable of circumstances, so did Adam. Just as the prodigal grew up with a loving and fulsome relationship with his father, so did Adam. The insane and heartbreaking problem is this, that both the prodigal and Adam and beloved, we with them threw all of it away. The parable of the prodigal reminds us that God created man good. Secondly, this afternoon, the prodigal son reminds us of our poisoned nature. The young man, having received his portion of his father's livelihood, sets out on his own. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me of Luke 15. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and sent him into his fields to feed swine. Let's read through actually verse 17. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods of the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Kids, I'm sure that you've had points in your life where you were pretty angry at your mom and dad, and you thought your rights were violated, and you said to their faces perhaps even, I'm going to run away. Now imagine your dad says to you when you come up to him in anger and say, Dad, I'm going to run away. Okay, your dad hands you a $20 bill and sends you away. You hop on your bike, excited at first. I've got $20. How often do I get a $20 bill to burn? You go down to the gas station, you spend almost all that money and all the candy and sweets that your mom has constantly said to you, no, just one. No, you buy a whole bag full this time. And she's always said, no, you can't have a whole two liter of Mountain Dew. You can have a cup. Well, you've got your own two liter of Mountain Dew now. So you take your bag of sweets and your two liter of Mountain Dew to the park and you eat all the candy. You drink half of the the bottle of Mountain Dew and now your stomach is getting pretty sick. You roll over, you find a park bench to sleep under. That's the only place you can go. You have no home. All you're going to do tonight is sleep with the squirrels and the temperature begins to drop. Well, now you know what it means to have squandered your property in prodigal living, as the text says, and spending all your money, and what it means now to be in need. 
Again, question and answer seven of the catechism. Where does this corrupt nature come from? From God? From some deficiency that he created in us or something he overlooked? No, beloved, the blame is squarely upon us. It comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Notice the separation between this prodigal son and his father. Verse 13, he, quote, journeyed into a far country. And then in verse 15, he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. Not only is this young man no longer in fellowship with his father, he's not in the same city, he's not in the same postal code, he's not even in the same province. No phone to call home, no money for postage. He's hungry, thirsty, tired, left for dead. And now he's literally living with the most unclean animal known to a Jewish person, swine. He's working for a Gentile. Verse 16, he's longing to be fed with pig slop. But no, no one will give him anything. Beloved, the allure of the, quote, good life was a delight to his eyes. It filled him with desire. He felt for it hook, line, and sinker. He threw out a life of greatest joy and the greatest, fullest fellowship with his father for the pleasures of the world. Congregation, that is misery. That is sin. That is idolatry. Consider again the parallel between this and the story of Adam. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Now the servant, serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God said to Adam and called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let's not concern ourselves with the devil's lies at the moments, beloved, but with Adam and Eve's response to those lies. In Genesis 3, verse 6, the fruit looks delicious. We read it delights the eyes. Perhaps Adam and Eve think it would be nice to be like God. I deserve it, after all. Maybe God has been withholding from me all this time. So here comes that dominion 
the taking care of the land of the garden, and the defense mandate we spoke of earlier, rooting out all evil, defending it from evil, to call to keep the garden and to watch over it. The devil should never have been allowed to enter into the garden in the first place. But at the first sign of lies and trouble, when Adam saw that snake whispering to his wife, he should have taken the nearest branch, thrashed that snake out of the tree, and stomped on it with his feet into a bloody mess. But he didn't. He took pleasure in the desire to be like God, rather than taking pleasure in the good and perfect gifts that God had already given him. So there we have it. The fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Adam runs. He hides from God, trying to cover his naked, his utter poverty with fig leaves. The prodigal lives his life of desires. He partakes of the things that are a delight to the eye. And now he's covered in pig manure, craving just a taste of the tree pods and the swine's trough. This young man, completely exposed to the world, is now at his wit's end. Adam exposed to the world, covering himself with fig leaves. You and I fallen into sin with them. But that question still lingers within. I get why the story of the young prodigal son is so sad. I get that what Adam did it was rebellion, and that we, his offspring, sure, we've fallen into sin. But it's question and eight, question and answer eight asks, are we so corrupt? Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Is it that extreme? Very simply, yes, unless the Spirit of God causes us to be born again. Yes, if you are part of the offspring of Adam, that includes each and every one of us. Then left to ourselves, we end up living in a far-off country, covering ourselves in fig leaves, and the best we can hope for is to swipe some food from the pig's trough. Beloved, the prodigal son reminds us that God created man good, reminds us that our nature was poisoned, and finally this afternoon it reminds us of our complete dependence on our Heavenly Father. Continue with me in Luke fifteen seventeen through 24. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have had have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him, had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to, the, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. When the text says there that he came to himself, 
is an idiom for someone, quote, coming to their senses. A change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. It's what we saw in question and answer eight as the only place where such a revitalization could come from. The work of the Holy Spirit. Are we so sinful, so corrupt, so totally unable? Yes. Unless, by the Spirit of God, we're born again. Instead of the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, some have referred to this parable as the parable of the waiting father. Not that our God is powerless, not that he's wringing his hands in heaven just hoping that we'll come back to him. No. But that he acts for us before we can act for ourselves. Beloved, let me say that again. Our God acts on our behalf before we can act for ourselves. Something within this young man changes before he arises and turns away from his sins and runs to his father. But notice that this son cannot even get to his father to confess his sins and apologize before his father is already running to him, before his father's already had compassion upon him. Before the son can even utter the words of his apology, the father is pursuing him. Again, this is something that no common father in that culture in that day would do. It would be embarrassing what this father does. It would be making a scene for this man to run to his son. He'd have to hike up his robes, and he falls upon his son, we read, kissing his neck. But this is the type of fatherly love this father lavishes upon his undeserving son. Before this son can even offer up a confession of sin, the waiting father is already running towards him. What do we expect? What would we think if we were writing the story? We would expect that this son comes to his father's office, that he falls on the ground and grovels, and his father looks down at him and frowns sternly. What do you have to say for yourself, son? Why should I let you back into my house after all that you have done? That's not what happens. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran, fell on him, and kissed him. The father acts first, and then the son says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned. I've done what is evil before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father immediately calls for his son to be dressed in royal garb, head to toe, for the fatted calf to be slaughtered, and for celebration and merriment to begin. Beloved, that is what our God, our Savior, does for his precious chosen children. By his Spirit, he converts, he changes hearts and lives, he causes us to turn to him in repentance and faith. He acts before we can act. That moving from complete misery to utter blessedness is nothing but a work of God alone. Start to finish. You see, when we grasp the extent of the bad news, how deep our rebellion was, how severe it is, well, then the good news shines all the more beautifully and brighter. Notice the language of the text. My son, who was dead, is now alive. Think of Ephesians 2. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but 
God, because of the love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. But the older son doesn't understand. Look with me at verses 25 and following. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have come, I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And if you never gave me a young goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, whom has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother who was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The older son just couldn't get over it. How could he treat a rebel like this? To think of our Lord Jesus, how could he deal with tax collectors and sinners? The older son didn't even know the depths of depravity in his own heart. You see, this parable is told before many Jewish people. You saw Jesus Christ preaching the gospel to tax collectors and sinners. They couldn't believe it. Ours are the prophets. Ours are the patriarchs. And yet this man comes preaching to tax collectors and sinners. And notice what the son says. I've never broken your commandments. They didn't even know their own hearts. So, beloved, I ask you this afternoon, where do you find yourself today? Perhaps you find yourself yourself stuck in the pig pen, wallowing in manure and slop. May you come to your senses by the work of the Holy Spirit. Rise and return to your Father. Perhaps you find yourself embittered like the older brother, wondering how such sinners could be saved by grace when yours aren't that bad. Well, if that's the case, then you have not truly recognized the depth of your sin and misery, the depth of your fallen state. And the Lord calls you as well to rise, to come to your senses, to return to your Father, you who are no more deserving than this prodigal son. Perhaps this day, and I pray it is so, you find yourself as a sinner, saved by the amazing grace your heavenly father well then celebrate god's grace today and like david in psalm 51 verse 13 have these words upon your lips then i will teach transgressors your ways the sinners will return to you for i am a sinner i'm a beggar bringing the word from one beggar to another beloved all oh, the depth of the riches the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his ways how inscrutable his judgments for from him and to him and through him are all things to god alone wise be glory forever and ever through jesus christ amen